When one family experiences so much tragedy, how do we reconcile it? Is it bad luck? Genetics? A curse? And can so much tragedy befall one family that their souls are doomed to roam the halls of their once grand home for an eternity? What if that home becomes a tourist attraction? What's scarier, a ghost or a living person capitalizing on trauma? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who loves a nice craft beer as much as the next person, but I would need a whole lot more beer than one family brewery could brew if my family degenerated and unraveled like the family in this episode. This week, we'll reconstruct a family tree whose once lush fruit began to rot. Was it a bad seed or the poisonous side of success? Let's visit the Lemp Mansion and meet the family that once called it home, and perhaps a few of them, long dead, who still do. As we turned around to leave, all four of us got instant chills when we heard a little boy say, Come play with me. I told my brother to shut up, and he responded, I didn't say anything. We strongly believe we had a door to our room unlocked after we locked it when we came back from the shared bathroom down the hall. We also dropped two coins in a 10 by 10 open area, and when we knelt down to pick them up, they were gone. We looked throughout the entire area and under furniture that was several feet away and still could not find the coins. I felt uneasy right away the second I got to the top of the stairs. My aunt seemed okay and wanted to explore, but I felt this heaviness. The hallway off to the left of the stairs was the worst. My body just would physically not go in that hallway. We heard a door slam upstairs and possibly a muted gunshot in another upstairs room. Then the guy took us to a final upstairs room, then turned out the lights so that all we could see was shadows from streetlights. We then all got to see a black mist formed by the door, move to the center of the room, and then vanish. I awoke to the sound of a baby crying and a woman talking. I got a little irritated because it was right outside our room. We were in the uh, big suite, uh, the lavender ladies' room. And how rude it was of this woman to just stand up there and make all that noise. I heard the crying at 5 p.m. and was told promptly there was no one else there but them after 3 p.m. and definitely no baby. My aunt said that during the night she awoke to someone petting her hair. Ah, America, the land of opportunity, where anyone with a dream can rise through the ranks and experience untold riches where happiness and fortune await anyone willing to put in the blood, sweat, and tears. Give us your poor, hungry, huddled masses, etc., etc. Of course, these sentiments are not as true as they once were, and they were always only meant for a certain kind of person. But true, all kinds of people all over the world have made it in America. And making it looks different depending on where you come from. For some, the American dream of two kids in a house with a white picket fence is enough. For others, their ambitions may be bigger. And for some, perhaps their dreams proved too big to hold on to. 
1838, a German brewer named Johann Adam Lemp, who was somewhere between 35 and 40 years old, followed several of his countrymen and emigrated to the United States from Eschwege, Germany, chasing the American dream. Apparently, Lemp's dream did not include his wife, Justina, and son, who he left behind in Germany with a considerable pile of debt. Listen, a bro's gotta do what a bro's gotta do. You can't expect him to lug his whole family to a new country. Ugh, so much baggage. Especially at a time when work prospects for women, not to mention single mothers, were limited. So Lemp was like, uh, bye, and fled to the United States to start a brand new life. By the time he landed in St. Louis, Missouri, there were thousands of German immigrants there. In fact, there were so many Germans in Missouri, it was called the American Rhineland. Lemp quickly opened a small grocery store, A. Lemp & Company, where, in addition to groceries, he sold his own homemade vinegar and beer. The beer was a lager whose recipe had been passed down to Lemp by his father. The beer was a big hit because, according to legendsofamerica.com, it was a light, golden lager rather than the darker ales and beers Americans were used to drinking. By 1840, Lemp abandoned the grocery business and turned his focus solely to brewing and selling beer and opened the Western Brewery. He sold his lager out of a small pub attached to his brewery. But soon, demand was outpacing his capacity, and, as luck would have it, he found a limestone cave south of the city limits. And he found that if he stocked the cave with ice he got from the nearby Mississippi River, it was the perfect place for his lager brewing operation. To give you a sense of what this cave was like, just in case, like me, you think of a cave as a cozy little nook carved into the side of a mountain where a family of cave people once lived with their cheery fire trying to stay safe from dinosaurs, this cave was, well, cavernous. It was about 100 yards long and about 20 feet wide, with enough space to store well over 3,000 barrels of beer. But Lemp needed help in the day-to-day management of his growing empire. According to the St. Louis Magazine website, in 1848, Lemp basically paid someone $100 to extricate his son William from Eschwege, where Lemp's now remarried, abandoned ex-wife Justina was like, the fuck? You'd think he also could have been like, here's a bunch of money to make up for the super shitty way I up and left you with all that debt. Incidentally, when her second husband died, Justina followed her son to America to try to find him, as, once again, a single woman in her 40s didn't have much financial prospects in Germany, or most anywhere else, in the mid-19th century. Unfortunately, any record of her ends at this point. For all we know, she ended up in a mental asylum simply because she didn't speak English. See the last episode. Anyway... Lemp's son, William, became the foreman and manager of his father's brewery. Lemp's extra pale lager was a huge hit in the States. In 1858, while Judy Garland was busy going clang, 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 went the trolley, it won first place at the annual St. Louis Fair. And yes, I know that movie is set in 1904, but I really wanted to make that reference, so please let me have this. Thank you. By the time Lemp Sr. died in 1862, he had amassed a fortune. He was a millionaire. Nick Forizos of Ozzy.com called him, quote, the embodiment of the American dream, end quote. Lemp's son William took over the brewery after his father's death and quickly expanded it. 
William purchased five city blocks above the cave his father had commandeered for brewing and built a three-story, state-of-the-art brewing facility with about 28 buildings in all, complete with the first refrigeration machine in an American brewery. And he installed refrigerated railway cars to transport his beer across the country. The Lemp Brewery became the first brewer to distribute coast-to-coast. At the same time, William also helped establish Pabst, Anheuser, and Bush beers. In his father's day, the company was extremely successful, producing 26,000 barrels of beer annually. But by 1886, under William's management, they now put out 300,000 barrels a year with sales over $3 million, which is close to a billion dollars in today money. In 1876, William, who had married in 1861, bought the home his father-in-law had built a short distance from the brewery and moved in with his wife, Julia, and their growing brood that would eventually be seven children. The house was impressive to begin with, but William was like, watch me make this more impressiver. And he renovated it and turned it into a 33-room mansion, complete with offices for the brewery, a tunnel leading to the brewery cave, part of which became a natural auditorium and theater once the cave was no longer needed for refrigeration purposes. Later, the underground portion of the house would sport a heated swimming pool and a bowling alley. Listen, I'm not going to lie. I love bowling. I would definitely install a bowling alley in my house if I could. And some skee-ball games. And maybe one of those games that pushes the quarters? Apparently, I want to live in a Dave & Buster's. Minus the people. But this was still the 19th century. I can't even imagine the effort and funds needed to make this fun house a reality. In 1895, William and Julia went into partial retirement. I suppose when the offices for your business are in your house, it's hard to completely dip out. And William put three of his sons in charge. William Billy Jr. became vice president, Charles was named treasurer, and Frederick assistant superintendent. Why he left out his other sons, Louis and Edwin, I don't know. Perhaps they were too young? But obviously he left out his three daughters because... (laughs) Everyone knows silly women can't do the important work of managing a beer company. They're too busy bleeding out of their gross lady parts and drinking fancy lady drinks like Cosmos or whatever the 19th century version of a Cosmo was. Anyway, William and Julia would not be able to enjoy their partial retirement for too long before tragedy struck the family and the fruit on the Lemp family tree began to wither. In 1901, Frederick Lemp, William and Julia's third son, who was widely known to be William's favorite child, died of heart failure at just 28 years old. According to Voices, the online magazine of the Missouri History Museum, the Lemp Company secretary, Henry Valkamp, was quoted saying, Suddenly the grief of the father was most pathetic. He broke down utterly and cried like a child. It was the first death in the family. He took it so seriously that we feared it would completely shatter his health and looked for the worst to happen. William Sr. had a family mausoleum built and in true William Lemp Sr. fashion spent the equivalent of about $2.5 million on its construction. That is a fancy corpse house, strangers. After his son's death, William Lemp withdrew from public life and was rarely seen outside his home. 
And then, three years later, William's best friend and father-in-law to his daughter Hilda, Frederick Pabst, of the Pabst Brewing Company, died, leaving William to be like, nah, I'm done. While he still showed up to work in his own house, mind you, he was apparently nervous and unsettled. Less than six weeks later, on February 13, 1904, William Lemp Sr. shot himself in the head and died. His estate, which was valued at $10 million, or more than $300 million in today money, was split between his wife, Julia, and then their remaining six children upon Julia's death from cancer two years later. William Billy Lemp Jr. took over as president of Lemp Brewing Company after his father's death, And where William Sr. was ostentatious and showy with his money, Billy was downright frivolous and reckless. Five years earlier, Billy had married Lillian Hadlin, the daughter of a wealthy railroad parts manufacturer who was known as the Belle of St. Louis. She eventually became known as the Lavender Lady as she exclusively wore only lavender. According to Voices, the online magazine, she employed a full-time staff of seamstresses and had seven carriages, one for each day of the week, all upholstered in lavender leather, which I can't even. Just knock it off. Billy had more of a head for partying than for business. Like, if the movie version of this story had been made in the 2010s, he would have been played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and I would still be resentful that I wasn't pretty enough to be cast as his wife. Billy and Lillian went about spending money like their lives depended on it, spending lavishly on a house staff, clothing, art, and parties. By 1908, the couple was engaged in a salacious, tabloid-covered divorce. Billy complained that Lillian was guilty of, quote, the excessive wearing of the color lavender to attract public attention, end quote. Again, I can't with this. Like, the seven lavender carriages weren't enough to tip you off in the first place? The lady liked purple, what can I say? Also, he claimed that she used profane language, ha, fucking ha, ha, and was unfaithful to him. Lillian claimed he regularly brought women into their home, had beaten her up, and threatened her with a revolver. Lillian managed to win custody of their only child, William III, although she almost wasn't granted custody when a photo was presented at trial of her smoking a cigarette. L-O-L. It was around this time that rumors began to swirl that Billy had fathered a child with a sex worker or one of the members of the house staff. The child was rumored to have Down syndrome and was given such a hideous and abhorrent nickname that I won't even say it. You can Google it if you absolutely need to. The child, being an embarrassment to the family, was allegedly kept locked up in an attic, though why they wouldn't have just put him in an institution is beyond me. There is no legal documentation of this child ever having existed, but local historian Joe Gibbons, who spent many years researching the Lemp family, claimed to have interviewed a former nanny and chauffeur that worked for Billy and Lillian, and they confirmed the stories of the child locked away in an attic. To be fair, not that any of this is fair, but this attic apparently also held some of the servant quarters, so I don't think it was like an empty, creepy storage attic, but, you know, still. Richard Lay, president of the cemetery in which the massive Lemp mausoleum is located, who also claims to have studied the Lemps for 30 years, believes the rumors are just that, 
rumors. It seems the basis for this assertion is that the 16 graves in the Lemp mausoleum account for all 16 members of the Lemp family, and any rumors of unmarked graves are false. Of course, if you're callous enough to leave a child locked up in an attic, I doubt you're going to go through the trouble of giving it a proper burial, or even an improper one in a cemetery. One of the living descendants of the Lemp family, Andrew Lemp Paulson, told the Riverfront Times in 2012 that rumors of a hidden child with Down syndrome are not only untrue, but insulting. He said, We're a real family, and these were good people. To claim that they would do something like that to a mentally handicapped child is extremely insulting. I mean, sure, but to be fair, many good people did some pretty awful shit back in the day without really understanding that what they were doing was awful. Anyway. Back to Billy Lemp as portrayed by early 2000s Leo DeCaps, in addition to the vast wealth he inherited, he also inherited the family business and promptly proceeded to run it right into the ground. At the same time that Billy was spending his dwindling fortune on remodeling the Lemp mansion, he was ignoring the deteriorating and out-of-date equipment in the brewery. In 1915, with the Lemp brewery business gasping for air, Billy remarried and went ahead and bought another house, this time a country retreat on the Merrimack River. And then in 1919, the Lemp Brewing Company, once a titan among American beer companies, was dealt its final blow when Prohibition came along. The brewery briefly tried to stay afloat with non-alcoholic beer, but was about a century too early for that trend to take off. And that same year, 1919, Billy threw in the dirty old smelly used up bar towel and was like, I'm out. And the brewery closed its doors. About a year later, on March 8, 2020, Billy's sister Elsa, after a brief reconciliation with her ex-husband, whom when she divorced she accused of destroying her peace and happiness, died by suicide, shooting herself in the heart. Apparently, when Billy arrived on the scene, he said, That's the Lemp family for you. Yikes, bro. In 1922, Billy sold off the company's assets, which were worth a fraction of what they'd been pre-Prohibition and before he pissed the whole company away. Less than six months later, Billy followed his father and sister and shot himself through the heart. But that wasn't the end of the Lemp family saga. In 1933, after the repeal of Prohibition, Billy's son, William III, tried to breathe life back into the Lemp brewery. In 1939, he brokered an agreement with another local brewing company to get the family company, which he renamed William J. Lemp Brewing, back off the ground. But despite his best efforts, a year and a half later, the company was bankrupt. Two years after that, in 1943, William III died of a heart attack. He was only 43. Despite Billy and William's deaths, the Lemp Mansion was not empty. Billy's brother Charles had moved back in in 1929 and, according to Voices Online magazine, had become, quote, increasingly reclusive, arthritic, and ill, end quote. According to Legends of America, as he got older, Charles developed a morbid fear of germs and, quote, obsessive-compulsive behavior, including wearing gloves at all times to avoid bacteria and constantly washing his hands, end quote. Charles would have been played by Leonardo DiCaprio circa The Aviator. 
On May 10th of 1949, Charles shot his beloved Doberman Pinscher, which how a Doberman Pinscher can be beloved is beyond me. Hideous hellhounds they are. Them and German shepherds. No thank you. And then shot himself to death. Charles Lemp was the only of the four Lemps who died by suicide to leave a note. It read, quote, In case I am found, blame it on no one but me, end quote. And look, his death was deemed a suicide, but apparently he shot himself on the stairs and he was found with the gun in his hand. And I'm no forensic expert, but A, who shoots themselves while walking up the stairs? Like he couldn't wait till he got to his room? And B, wouldn't he have dropped the gun? And the note, in case I am found, blame it on no one but me. I don't know, it just seems fishy to me. Like the note might as well have said, I was definitely not murdered by a member of the house staff. Anyway, the mansion was sold that same year and turned into a boarding house. I have no idea what they did with the creepy underground adult playground. And then in 1970, the last remaining Lemp child, Edwin, died of old age at 90. According to LegendsofAmerica.com, his final wishes were to have all the paintings, artifacts, and family documents, wait for it, burned. All that was left of the family legacy, probably worth millions of dollars, up in smoke. Nope, this is not the way, folks. As someone who comes from two families that created successful businesses of which there is nothing left a few generations later, this makes me want to go out into the woods and scream and hit trees with a stick, which someone will inevitably get audio of and say it's evidence of Bigfoot. I can't, and I won't, and you can't make me. With the Lemp Mansion now operating as a boarding house and the neighborhood around it deteriorating, the once grand Victorian home slowly slipped into disrepair. Boarders complained of phantom knocking and footsteps, and between that and the neighborhood falling apart, it became harder and harder for the owners to find tenants at all. By the 1970s, it was basically a flop house, which for those of you who've never had your stepmom throw your covers back and open your window shades at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday and declare, I'm not running a flop house. A flop house is a super cheap place to sleep. Like, here's a stained mattress that may or may not have a sheet on it. No, your door doesn't lock. Be happy there's a roof over your head kind of thing. In 1973, a man named Dick Pointer, strangers, focus. We do not have time to laugh at Mr. Pointer's name. Mr. Dick Pointer, or as he's listed in the phone book, Pointer Dick, bought the dilapidated Lemp Mansion and renovated it, turning it into a restaurant and inn, which is still in operation today. It's become a popular tourist destination known for its award-winning accommodations and its, quote, world-famous Lemp Mansion family-style Sunday chicken dinner, according to its own website. The Lemp Mansion Restaurant and Inn offers overnight stays for $160 a night on weekdays and $215 on weekends in quaint rooms such as the William Lemp Suite, the Elsa Suite, and the Lavender Suite. So you, too, can stay in the room where William, Billy, or Elsa shot themselves to death and walk the staircase where Charles met the same fate, if you're into that kind of thing. 
The Lemp Mansion Restaurant and Inn also features live mystery dinner theater, wedding packages, Halloween events, as well as weekly ghost tours by a paranormal investigator, which is obligatory when CNN Travel names you one of the five most haunted places in the world. And while the paranormal goings-on at the Lemp Mansion Restaurant and Inn may attract tourists, chicken dinner aficionados, and intrepid romantics, it doesn't help the Pointer family hold on to employees. According to Legends of America, quote, workers within the house often told stories of apparitions, strange sounds, vanishing tools, and a feeling of being watched. Frightened by the hauntings, many would leave the job site never to return. Since the restaurant opened, staff members have reported several strange experiences. Again, apparitions appear and then quickly vanish, voices and sounds come from nowhere, and glasses will often lift off the bar flying through the air by themselves. On other occasions, doors are said to lock and unlock by themselves. Lights inexplicably turn on and off of their own free will, and the piano bar often plays when no one is near." End quote. In 1980, Life magazine listed the Lemp Mansion as one of the nine most haunted houses in America. Paranormal investigator Betsy Burnett Bellinger, who has studied the mansion for more than two decades, told Ozzy.com in 2017 there are, quote, nine identifiable spirits in the house, end quote, who are neither malevolent or benevolent, but, quote, they're just people, and sometimes they have a bad day, and people make them mad, end quote. Girl, same. The staff insists that the basement area that used to have the entrance to the underground playground with the original brewing cave, the swimming pool, and the bowling alley is the gateway to hell. I don't know if they mean that literally or like the way I refer to a mall on a Saturday afternoon as one of the seven circles of hell. The other two most haunted areas in the mansion are the stairs, presumably where Charles Lemp couldn't wait to shoot himself, and the attic, where the alleged illegitimate son of Billy Lemp was allegedly locked away. There are rumors that the face of a young boy can be seen peeking out from the top floor windows sometimes, and according to legendsofamerica.com, so-called ghost investigators have left toys on the floor of the attic only to find them moved the next day when they come back to check. Which is especially strange because some sources say he lived up there until he died in his 30s. Then again, I suppose the entertainment options in an attic are few and far between. So if a child's toy is all you can get, get it, I guess? Apparently, Billy Lemp likes to hang out in the women's restroom downstairs. I guess it was his bathroom when he was alive and he's just super lucky that now it's a women's room so he can peep on women while they take a shit? However you get your kicks, I guess. Incidentally, a hidden camera was found in the bathroom of a coffee place in Providence a few years ago. So, you know, definitely not how you should be getting your kicks. The offender apparently had the camera recording while he was installing it. So, you know, not only a pervert, but a stupid pervert. Also, I don't mind getting spied on by a ghost, but the guy who's making my dirty chai latte? No thank you. William Lemp's bedroom is also known as a hot spot in the house for ghost activity, with guests claiming to have heard footsteps running up the stairs and then kicking at the door. Apparently, when William Lemp killed himself, his son Billy ran up the stairs and began kicking the door to get it open. 
I watched a very silly YouTube video in which two women walked around the mansion saying, Is this the dining room, William? Yes, lady, it has a bunch of tables set for dinner. Clearly, it's the dining room. And using things like pinwheels and baby monitors to communicate with the spirits in the house. How anyone ever buys into any of those ghost hunting shows, I'll never know. Since the days of Mary Todd Lincoln's photograph with her dead husband hovering in the background, everyone knows about adding things in post. Incidentally, if the Discovery Channel wants me to host a ghost hunting show, please disregard that whole last part. Apparently, the real attraction is the caves down below, which is now owned and operated separately from the mansion itself. A company called Halloween Productions Incorporated hosts the Lemp Haunted House there, which they claim is the only real haunted house in America, and, as far as I can tell, is only open around Halloween. Wouldn't you think if a place were really haunted, you could sell tickets to it year-round? From what I can tell, it's a pretty standard run-of-the-mill haunted house where it's dark and creepy and ambient scary music plays as lots of spooky things are rigged to jump out and scare you. The weird thing about this is that as far as I know, no one died in the caves. The scariest thing that seemed to happen down there were beer and opium-fueled Victorian-style orgies, I'm assuming. But all the awful tragedies happened in the house, so why the caves would be haunted is a mystery to me. Also, they could easily turn the whole thing into an escape room business and, I'm guessing, make a ton more money operating year-round. Do I have to do everything? Perhaps the scariest thing, aside from the very real trauma experienced by the very real people inside that house, is the idea of turning one family's tragedy into a tourist attraction. I suppose if you're going to buy a piece of history, one with rumors of ghosts, you might as well lean into it. But if I were one of the Lemp ghosts, I would vacate the house just to spite the people trying to make money off my name. And I don't want to shame any of you who might be into visiting haunted hotels and the like. If that's your thing, live your best life while you still can. And once again, the irony that I am indeed making money off this family's tragedy is not lost on me. But look, some people like beer. Some people like serial killer trading cards. Others like staying in old houses where families fell apart. As the late, great Stephen Sondheim said, you gotta have a gimmick. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. Anything can happen when some dude bros on the internet have too much time on their hands and perhaps not enough of a healthy social life, IRL. For example, a creepy, shadowy internet figure with an image hosting site where unsavory photos of children can be found can somehow get implicated in the political assassination of a militant leader thousands of miles away. We'll take a dive into the mystery called Lake City Quiet Pills. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. 
Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Lauren Hooper, and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. And check out my merch. Find the perfect holiday gift for the favorite stranger in your life. Search Strange and Unexplained at tpublic.com. 